Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Henry MacDonald, a journalist working for The Guardian and The Observer newspapers and who has covered the Northern Ireland Troubles for more than 30 years. He's written eight non-fiction titles, including books on various paramilitary groups such as the UDA, the UVF and the INLA, as well as a biography of the UUP leader David Trimble and another called Martin McGuinness, A Life Remembered. His latest book is called Two Souls. It's his second novel and is a deep dive into pure 1970s and 80s Belfast with the political and violent tensions that existed on the streets against a backdrop of football, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Henry, I suppose Two Souls deals with a lot of topics that influenced you growing up. And I suppose to put some context on that, we probably need to go right back to the start and talk about your early years. So you were born in central Belfast and no doubt as a result witnessed firsthand a lot of things. Yeah, I had a ringside seat when it all kicked off, when the, the bell rang and the and the, the pugilists got into the ring. Um, I was five when the trouble started. Really? Uh, starting primary school. And uh, because we were in the centre of the city, there were, you know, a lot of bombs going off and, you know, in, in the early 70s. Uh, also, we lived beside a pub. Right. And there was a whole phenomenon of targeting pubs the pub bombings of the early 70s so everything happened we had gun battles outside the door we had people shooting our house up we had a car bomb exploding right outside the door and nearly killing me and my father um we had in term in 1971 we had a british army saracen armored personnel carrier crashing into the house was this just the norm then for it you? was a norm for me i mean it was it was seeing armed soldiers in the street it was like you know, one 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 year you're watching war f- British war films, you know, with uh, various actors, and the next you're seeing real troops on the street. It, it was kind of the norm, yeah, for for two decades. And was least. there ever a point when you thought to yourself, actually, maybe this isn't normal? Yeah, when you went to, when you went away on holiday, right. <laughs> whether that was in England in Blackpool for the ubiquitous, you know, B and B holiday in in the summer or Brighton where we had friends, and which in fact in, in, impacted in this book too, or further afield, France or Spain, that's when you realised it was abnormal. Or down south, when you crossed the border, you know, for the, the away day to get away from the 12th of July, the, the, the Dundalk races, or, the you know, down to, further down to Dublin, that's when you realised there was uh, something very abnormal about the streets you live in. And looking back now, I suppose, with, the, with the, you know, the benefit of hindsight, did it impact on you and, and, and how you have grown into the person that you are? Well, of course it did. I mean, it's bound to. It's bound to mark you. I mean, both in terms of living in a divided society, a conflict zone, um, a, a, you know, you, your view of human nature, I think, is skewed and, and, and coloured by, by that. Uh, and, I also think uh, you're, you, 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 you know, when I went to other conflicts around the world to cover them, whether that was in Lebanon or the Gulf or anywhere else, I, I, get, I hope I, get un- I can understand a bit more, get, get a, a wee bit more insight into the complexity 
of that, war zones and it isn't just black and white. There's a lot of grey areas there. And you could have gone in one of two directions. You could have gone in the direction you went or you could have followed the allure of violence and gotten, gotten into that. Which is the story of this book. And the story of this book is, I keep saying it's not personal. It's, it's not autobiographical, but it is personally based. So I'm imagining a character like me in the 70s taking the wrong road, going down, you know, the two woods diverge in a yellow, two roads diverge in a yellow wood, but you go down to the, the dark end of the forest, you take the darker route. And this central character in the book, who's the narrator for most of it, does exactly that. And I try to imagine that, I projected that. And what do you think stopped you going down the wrong road? I think a couple of things, I think. I, the two piece. The first is parents. My my father was very much opposed to the use of violence to pursue political means. He was an old fashioned socialist and trade unionist, and my mother thought the same as well. So I think they had a heavy influence on me, and also they hammered home the importance of education for liberating working class people, including myself. And the other P was punk rock. Right, I think okay. getting involved in that spontaneously in 1977 onwards gave you an insight to a life. There was life elsewhere. And it got you to meet people that came from across the divide, if you like, came from other parts of the city you would not have met normally. And it kind of made you think, you know, these people aren't the enemy. You know, they're just like me. So punk rock as opposed to violence. It was like it was like an antidote to uh, a lot of the toxins that were flying about that you could have been infected with. And with the writing, then when did you start writing? <laughs> I actually started writing my first uh, story at primary school. I won a competition. It was a number of us did at the school. It was a national short story co- or art competition uh, uh, about uh, endurance, and it was for it was kind of a national kids school kids competition. I ended up going to London for winning it. So that kind and what of, did you write about? Oh, I think it was about a, a plane crash. And the only survivor of the plane crash is a blind man. But it's in the, the crash in the desert. So it was extremely difficult for him to walk on the topography of the desert. Right. So, so how he got through. And, and my friend won it as well because he did the painting of it. He painted it. He was a very good artist. So your imagination was already, you know, working working away at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think um, that, that... Also, I had a cousin who was a a writer, a journalist, uh, Jack Holland, who, strangely enough, by a, a quirk of fate, you know, many, many years later in 1994, both of us penned a, a book called Deadly Divisions on the History of the INLA. We worked on that together. And a lot of people didn't know, including the publishers, that we were actually cousins. Oh, right. Okay. So, you know, um, so those were, the, those were the kind of influences that led, led me to writing. But I did a lot of uh, short stories and writing when I was at primary school and, and things like that. And, and was journalism a, a choice that you, you actively made? Not initially, but, but by the time I was at university, I was thinking very strongly about it. Yeah, in fact, when I was at university, I was working as a freelancer. I was actually working with the ed- editing the student paper in, in Belfast and Gown newspaper, independent newspaper, still exists, one of the lasting independent student papers. And I was also working for BBC Youth Programmes I, I, in, in the mid-1980s as a freelance radio reporter making... And that was still based in Northern Ireland? I was based in Belfast, you know. So, I, was, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I got a couple of scoops. One was the uh, first ever interview with a, a joyrider who'd been shot, kneecapped, on radio. And uh, my boss at the time was a guy called Davy Sims, who was a brilliant producer. 
And when he was being interviewed about his programme's 30th anniversary, he singled out that story as one of the the best scoops that his young reporting team got, you know, at the time. So, And did yeah. you move over to London then or, or how did that work? No, I I, st- I, I came down here to the, the old NIHE. Right, okay. Now DCU to, right. do a, to, to do a postgrad diploma in, it's now an MA in journalism. It's a one year thing. I was freelancing while I was in Dublin for the Irish News and others. Uh, Sunday News as well. The now a defunct Sunday paper, very good Sunday paper. Uh, I and I ended up as their Dublin correspondent, uh, and I went to work for the Irish News for several years. And and it, it, you were catapulted into the cauldron because at that time there was an upsurge in loyalist violence as well as IRA, and I kind of carved out the niche. No one was talking to the loyalists, especially the UDA, and. Uh, which might seem strange given my, given my Catholic background, but I got in with them, so to speak. I got to talk to them, interview them. And um, and they trusted you then? Well, yeah, and it, they were quite surprised. They were actually, I think they wanted to talk because at that stage there was the tentative steps towards peace and the ceasefires. And they wanted to get their message out that they, they wanted to end this as much as everyone else did. So that was a time of carnage, Weekly funerals or weekly murder, shootings, attempt, a lot of bombings going off. Really, honestly, the tempo of, of terror was was quite intense. And, you know, you were you were going to very, very serious stuff week, day in, day out. How do you keep yourself safe in that situation? Well, I think you have to you're, I think you, you have this privilege of being in the, one of the few actors, this is journalists, reporters who move between the lines, who, who get up and walk across no man's land and get into the different trenches I think that but you have to be very careful and navigate your way through that and don't mess about and don't try to with the reportage anyway different for commentary but to uh, you know keep the facts and try to try to amplify all sides all points of view Absolutely and you can't get complacent No 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 certainly not and you know God when you think about even now I mean I can't believe that a young journalist like Lara McKee, who mm-hmm. I knew kind of vaguely, but I, I always encouraged her when she was starting out. You know, when... Yeah, compl- exactly. I mean, you can't get complacent. I mean, there you go. Someone lost their life in 2019. It's it's almost unfathomable mm-hmm. that it would happen. You know, because there were times out there, certain incidents, certainly riot situations, the civil disorder, where really anything could happen very, very suddenly. You know, I, I remember being at a riot which ended up in a gun, in gun attacks, grenades thrown, AK-47s being fired. And, you know, this was unexpected. We didn't think this was going to happen. And, you know, you have to think very fast. But I suppose the training of being a kid, <laughs> growing up in the very early 70s, which was the worst periods in terms of death toll and, and, and incidents, probably you stood had, me in good stead, yeah. And you had on-street training as a result. Well, yeah. your parents drilled it into you, you know... <laughs> what to do you know in the event of you know and at what point then did you decide you wanted to write the first the first book well the first book was actually about the defence forces in Lebanon oh right okay. yes because I went out there I, I was funny I was in the Gulf War at the very end of it I was sent out to do the 1991 Gulf War I was sent out to Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and that was a fascinating experience to see the ecological destruction that Saddam Hussein's forces had caused the turkey shoot of the retreating Iraqi army by the US-led coalition. It was basically a massacre on the way back when they were trying to get back into Iraq. And I encountered a couple of uh, 
people who had been in the Irish Defence Forces who were now in the British Army who told me about what was going on in Lebanon. I had friends and relatives who were soldiers out there and I thought, well, that's an untold story, isn't it? I mean, there's there's numerous things happened, but it hasn't been collected into one work. So, And was there enough? There obviously was enough more to get than it enough, into, yeah. into one book. And I, I spent a lot of time out there, uh, firstly, as a, as a print journalist. I mean, I became quite intimately knowledgeable about that, that area of operations in South Lebanon, those villages and towns that the Irish were in from 1978 for 20-odd years now, 30 years. You know, they, they'd left their indelible mark on the, that area. So that was the first book, and how 1993. Did you, how did you go about getting that published? Well, I just wrote a proposal, uh, put it up and met Fergal Tobin from, he was then editor at Gillen McMillan, a veteran, you know, publisher. And Fergal's always been a great supporter of mine through my career. Both He published another book belonging to me a, a long, long time later, but always in every book I've done, he's been a great uh, enabler Supporter. and encourager. Yeah. So, and you went on, only seven more followed, <laughs> you know, yeah, um, yeah. but interestingly, again, mostly concerning, as we said, the, the paramilitary groups like, you know, the UDA, the mm. UVF and the INLA. You're digging deep with those type of, of, of books as well. Were you ever nervous about putting the pen to paper and writing those stories? I was nervous about the consequences because there might be things in there that could land you in trouble. I do remember the INLA book because of that, that was such a factionally divided organisation. There was paranoia from one faction or other. Oh, they're only going to tell their version of what happened. They're biased. They're hanging out with the, these guys, and they, you know, I'm not going to name who they are. But so when we met the other rival faction, uh, it was quite menacing initially. And I'll tell you something for free. I met them in a downtown cafe in Belfast in 1994. And we we desperately wanted their side of the story. Desperately wanted it. And there were four individuals, okay? One man. Sorry, three men, one woman. And I went to the bathroom before the meeting started. Because I was quite nervous, you know. I wanted to Mm -hmm. wash my hands. and, And as I was doing what you do in the loo... I felt a hand against my against my my neck, and I had my face pushed against the uh, the, the brickwork of the urinal. And it was two of the four said individuals who were searching me for a wire. That's how paranoid they were, and there was right. no wire. I had my notebook, and that was it, right? And uh, they said, "Oh, we, got, we can't be certain who you are." And they knew fine, rightly. It, it was an act of intimidation. Mm-hmm. They knew I wasn't wired for. They sound. were setting the scene. They were just you know laying down the line, and. Two interesting things about that encounter. Then it was perfectly fine. They, I, I convinced them, look, you, we need to hear your side of the story as well. Your rivals, your former comrades turned enemies have said this about you, but you want it. what do you want to say in return in this book? But, um, and there was one guy in particular who was very menacing. He says, we've the power to stop this book. And I says, what do you mean you've the power to stop this book? You mean you're going to kill one of us? Because myself and Jack Holland were writing it. Anyway, they relented and they realised they wanted their version. But two things. Within a matter of about two years, three years, those four people turned on each other in another round of feuding. And three out of the four are now dead. Right. Right? Slain not by their loyalist enemies of the British Army or whoever, but by themselves, by each each other. other, Right? The other thing we found out subsequently from someone who then himself is killed well, it was through his one of his colleagues, but a person that was killed in the Mullock Tower helicopter crash in 1994 when 26 British 
security experts were killed in, in a helicopter crash in Scotland. They were actually going on, the, on their way to discuss the implications of the IRA ceasefire for the loyalists. It was a conference when they, this accident happened. One of those people had planted agents or spotters in the cafe when I went. I didn't know any of this. I hadn't a clue. But many years later, one of his colleagues, the dead colleague, his, his live colleague said, we had, we had people in the cafe sitting, couples, watching to see if you were all right hmm. or that you were going to be abducted or something. You know, we we're going to move in quickly and, <laughs> and see if you're bacon. And looking back... So that's, and, uh, it, it, it's, it's, like, it's like spycraft. I mean, it's mad, you know. But. And looking back, though, on that now, you know all of that now. That's all hindsight, of course. Yeah. Totally. Didn't so d- does, it, does it, you know, you're better off not knowing at the time, I imagine. But it, you, you'd have sw- I'd have sweated even more than I was sweating, Absolutely. I can tell you. And it was a pretty hurry thing that... Yeah, and even your memoir as well. You wrote a, a memoir about your your mm. your childhood, and was was that cathartic in a way? It was. Uh, yes, it was. It was. I was trying to separate memories out. I, I had to distill and funnel a lot of them down. I mean, there was so much, but you know, the big events like the car bomb going off outside the house, the the house being smashed up by the British army, and so on. Um, and did you have to rely heavily on family and yeah, friends? Yeah, I went for back that. and spoke about the mum and dad before the, 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 they're passed away, sadly. But uh, yeah, all that. And sister, my sister's got phenomenal memory. She's uh, she's got a better memory than I have, <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, details, times of year, uh, what what was the colour of the wallpaper in the house when the when, when the windows came in, you know all that. <laughs> Just, you know. So there was no there was no rouse afterwards saying that she, they felt it wasn't accurate. No, no, never, never at all. Interesting. Um, and then you also wrote, uh, as we said, a biography of David Trimble. Mm. Why him? Well, I mean, you know, if you think about it, in the, t- the the first phase of the peace process, Jerry Adams is the coming man, isn't he? I mean, he's the guy that, you know, Bill Clinton and and Albert Reynolds, later Bernie Hearn, are expecting to deliver the IRA, and. You know, and to deliver the Republican community to give up arms and, and enter constitutional politics. By the time, as we roll towards Good Friday Agreement, the coming man is now David Trimble. He's got to do the same, okay, different scenario. He doesn't have an army behind him, but he has the loyalists to, to talk, to convince as well. And he's got, you know, Paisley on his flank. So he, the pressure's on him now. And I thought, well, no one's actually written about him. He's an interesting character because he was there when the last settlement the Sunningdale Agreement of 1974. And in fact, he was he opposed that. He helped, he was part of a group that brought that down. And now here he was, eight, was it 18 years later, no, 20, 24 years later, bringing, it, bringing about something similar, although it was diluted. It was more unionist friendly this time around, the, the, the Good Friday Agreement. So I thought, you know, it's obvious. He He's an interesting character. He's got the year of prime ministers and presidents. And this uh, is an interesting phase that unionism's entering. So, yeah. And was this an authorised or no, unauthorised? Unauthorised. It was unauthorised. And how did he feel about it? Do you know? Well, he wasn't that hostile. I mean, he he, he was cooperative. He, he he kept he kept a bit of critical distance, but I was glad for that. In terms of my integrity and the book's integrity, I'm glad he was, um, you know, slightly distant from it. And did you interview him for it? Oh, I did. Yes, yes, a couple of times. And in terms of writing a biography, then did you find that quite different from other non-fiction books you'd done? Sure. I mean, well. Yeah, well, it's more linear, of course, because it's a biography. Although I st- I always like a prologue. I love a good curtain raiser. So you know, my prologue was flash forward to the Drum Creek crisis, which made him and then nearly br- and then broke him, right? 
So it started in Portadown, which was his constituency, and started at, at the Drumcree Church. And then you go back in time to when he was a kid. He's, he was born after the war, well, just during the war, and then he, you know, he, you know, all that, all, an Ulster childhood in the forties and fifties. But uh, so, but over, overall, it does have a, a straight linear line in the biography. Whereas um, some nonfiction, you're right, doesn't. I mean, the the the, the Irish Bat book about the Irish defence forces in Lebanon was more thematic than than linear. Uh, well, it did take a linear thing, but it was also there were themes in each chapter. And Martin McGuinness then the same, very different because it was more picture led. It was primarily, excuse me, it was primarily a book based around a series of pictures, an, a pictorial archive of his life. And my job then was to write the pictures. But see, I think my my experience in broadcasting helped because when you're being trained in television, they say to you. Pictures first, script second, mm-hmm. text and writing to the pictures. Write what you see. So I applied that philosophy from TV writing, TV script writing, new new script writing, obviously not you know drama or anything, to the imagery, and I let everything led by the image. And did that make it easier? It, it didn't. It didn't. The, the, the big problem about that book was it, the, it was brevity. I mean, it had to be shorter because pictures were the most important thing. So the demands of uh, siding down the text and making it compact and making it fit all the pictures was it was it was a different kind of challenge. It's interesting. Just with all of those books, did you stay with the same publisher? No, I I, I leapt around. I, I went from Gillan McMillan, my first book, the pool bag with the INLA Deadly Divisions book, and that was a quite a good with uh, Phil McDermott then the late Phil McDermott. He was a wonderful publisher. And uh, they were a great, they were a great publishing house, but then, you know, the and they published UVF as well. But UDA was taken up by uh, Penguin Ireland, right? And uh, I think well, some of the other books. Uh, well, Trimble was Bloomsbury, and that um, that was at a time when Bloomsbury were looking for a lot of non-fiction because they just hit the Harry Potter jackpot. But they were also looking to be taken. You know, were also serious publication in terms of non uh, uh, non-fiction works and so I, I, I got uh, in lucky. What's interesting I suppose is that all of your books they do deal with what was happening in one small part of the world now mm-hmm. a very important part of the world obviously but you know so quite niche in terms of the audience they might relate to um, was that reflection of book sales or were they received well outside of Ireland? Um, the Trimble book was received very well it, it got a whole, a whole page review in The Guardian it was the it was the lead item. I was actually in Guernsey at a, a speech to the uh, Guernsey Chambers of, Chamber of Commerce, that, a weekend conference about you know the, the the peace process and stuff. And when I when I bought the Guardian in, in the airport, and it was just tremendous. There it was. The UDA book got a great review in the Financial Times magazine at the time. Uh, it, they, I mean, normally those kind of books don't travel very far outside of Ireland, you know, and and the ones about the north, even across the border. So, you know, and when I wrote this novel, although it's set in Belfast and it's set in a specific couple of time frames, I wanted it to be universally appealing. Mm-hmm. And I probably, although, I mean, one of, the, one of the sections of the book, the 1978 sections, are all based around a track from David Lowy's, David Bowie's, David Bowie's iconic first album in Berlin, Low. And I did that... For both atmospheric reasons and also, I suppose, 
Machiavellian reasons too. Yes, that was an album that influenced me in my teen, early teens, and uh, and it was a good soundtrack for this doomed love affair that takes place in, in seventy eight, and it, which has a marked influence on the main character's r- r- life thereafter. But you know, it also I think people, you know, in in Stoke or in Middlesbrough or in Glasgow can relate to that who are my age who are going through that whole period can relate to that absolutely because right? and because music is is a huge backdrop I suppose to the book and we're, we're hearing you know Bowie as you say the Buzzcocks the Sex Pistols so lots of others outside of Ireland will obviously it, it, I'm appearing to pop, a, pop, a, a, a corner of popular culture yeah so what took you so long to move to fiction then <laughs> I, I, well I've always wanted to do it and I, I kept trying I actually first ever attempt stab at a novel which I have somewhere all it's all typed up to it's in type it's ty- not a typewriter my god was well, a, a novel which was a kind of an offshoot of the book on Lebanon it was a thriller a kind of and it was actually a treasure story right but a treasure map did they find the treasure in the end? I can't tell you because you never know I might return to it but yeah and it causes all kinds of trouble you know it's like the tre- I was influenced by the treasure of the Sierra Madre that great Humphrey Bogart film or he goes increasingly mad when they all get gold in when they all dig for gold. And I just want I thought set this one out in the Middle East among an Irish army officer, a missing soldier, and the quest for this map and stuff, you know. Sounds good, I'd read yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, well yeah, maybe I'll come back to it one day, but uh, but I, I just didn't finish it and I wasn't I just the time wasn't right. Was it your practice book? It could have been, yeah. And then I wrote this detective novel that I thought would take off and it didn't do as well as I I was thought it would. Based in Berlin, a city where I used to live, and I've had a heavy influence influence on my life. And uh, I, 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 I still love the main character, Martin Peters, the swinging detective. He's Great an unusual title. character, and but it, I think it wasn't marketed properly, frankly. But I'm glad I did it. It was a tremendous lesson in the art of writing a novel, which is wholly different from non-fiction work absolutely and you've been able to take all of that experience now and put it into two souls exactly and also (laughs) journalism does help I mean you know journalists I mean the characters are assemblages of they're collages of characters I knew that I pieced together and created these new beings you know (laughs) these new actors or characters the but also the stories some of them are, are lifted from real life events that I experienced, witnessed, or wrote about. And they got inputted into the narrative of each of the sections of the book, right? So the stuff about the, the, the internal feud and the, the section which is all based on smuggled prison communications, that's some real life stuff that I came across, A, researching deadly divisions, INLA, and B, you know, knowing about for quite some time in 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 the course of doing your reportage your your normal day-to-day journalism right so put all that together you know as i say journalists are magpies but so are novelists yeah you know? the journalism thing though you know again you're writing more short form it's you know a thousand words here two thousand words there this is different this is a much longer piece that you have to keep the the, the plot flowing so was that difficult the yes, it it was it's more difficult and especially difficult if you're writing, if you're chopping and changing in time. So in terms of structure, 
I mean, it's heading towards a climax. A denouement. And a kind of aftermath, right? But what I did, what the, what I decided to do was do it in beats. So, nineteen. So, it's one day, and one one weekend in nineteen seventy nine. So it's seventy nine, nineteen seventy nine, nineteen seventy nine, and then it bends back to seventy eight, and then it flashes forward to the jail in nineteen eighty seven, and then it goes again, the same rhythm. 79, 79, 78, And did it, did it take a while to get into that rhythm yes, for it to work yes, for you? Yes, it did. And there, there were, I think it, I hope, I hope, I let others judge this, but my intention was to make it, that, give them that rhythm, that kind of series of beats, you know? And if you, if you, if you look at it, if you it did a kind of a, a structural analysis of it, you'd see that's what I, I've done. And in terms of your editor then that you were working with on this, do they have much influence on, on how you structured it? They did. Can I praise the editor? Can I name her? Of course her? you can, yeah. Maria McGuinness, Sutton Donegal. Uh, wonderful job. I really thought... She she pointed things out that, you know, I just went, oh my God, why did I not spot that? Mm-hmm. You know, That's uh, what editors are Certain, for. fantastic. And, and also, you know, the she able to point out the fat that could be carved off off the carcass, you know. Uh, there the was, unnecessary aspects. Yes, and there wasn't much, but what there was made sense. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a good experience. It's the best editing experience I've had. I have to say, of all my editors, that was not, she provided the most insightful, and I've learned a lot from her. And was this who's published this one then? It's Marion Press, which is the kind of the, the fiction wing, if you like, of, of Irish academic press. And is this the first book you have worked with, with them on? Uh, yeah, Conor Graham, who's from my neck of the woods. I'm lucky for two reasons. The music in this book is the music Connor's into. Right. right. We, we both that sh- works. <laughs> we both share a love of the fall, Live of the Witch Trials, right? For example. We also support Cliftonville Football Club, which is an important aspect of this book. The football the football element, following a football team and, and the, the hooligan bit, right? Although he was never a hooligan, let me say that now, Connor wasn't. And we're both from Belfast. Even though he's based in Kildare, we're Marion, Irish Academic Press are based. So it was a perfect marriage, right? And he did say to me, when he read, the, when I when I first sent him the manuscript, you know, the, the, the last one, the first draft, he was in New York and he said, well, he's walking about New York and he, when he was on the plane, he was reading the Bowie bits, the, the, the sections that w- which had a song from each from the Low album for each chapter. He went and he downloaded Low, and he said he walked around New York, listening to Low. And it, he says it could, and, and and some of the stuff in that was coming back to recurring and haunting him as he was walking about Manhattan. Absolutely, and and that's why I think the book will appeal to people of a certain age as well who can who, who can re- remember that you know. And what are you working on at the moment? Well, uh, journalism, I'm in London. I'm working nationally on an amalgam of stories. Funny, I did a story, one of my favourite stories I did recently relates to this. There's an annual punk festival in Blackpool called Rebellion. You were there with bells on. I was there. uh, (laughs) I was there trying to promote the book as well among all the punk generation. And uh, so I did that. That was a nice thing. But I I I like rich and varied stories from stories about drug liberalisation to stories about you know, I'm doing one soon about a vineyard that's expanding in the southeast of England because of Brexit. It's going to try and replace some if the French wine gets too expensive post Brexit. With all the they're going to try and they're going to try and fill in the the, the, the market. So it's a nice story. Uh, but in terms of the book, I'm 
I'm toying with ideas at the minute. I'm, I'm notebooking. I'm, I'm scribbling stuff down. But I have this idea that's beginning to not. Martin Amos said that a book for him always begins with a throb. A nagging thing, like almost like a toothache, you know. You can't get rid of it. And I've got this toothache, which is, I, I recently discovered through a cousin, a cousin of mine that I had relatives. I, I come from a family where we have both Protestant and Catholic backgrounds. So we had, my grandmother was born on the Shangle Road, maternal grandmother. Her father was killed on the Western Front. He'd survived the Battle of the Somme in 1916. He was in the crater of water. He, he collapsed into it, but he got out, crawled out like some primeval creature in the mud and the slime, got back to Belfast, then rejoined his battalion, and was killed then later in Ypres in, in an accident, oh, sent into a machine gun nest. And But relatives on the Catholic side of the family were also in the British Army and were also killed, including my great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, right? My, you know, so I'm, I'm also obsessed with... Uh, Ghost stories. Really? <laughs> yep. And I would love to write something because I like playing with time. In this book, it's, I, go, I move from 79, 78. You right do, up to and very successfully. Yes. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> and up to 94. I'd love to be able to do that on a more ambitious level where part of the book is the, the story of the two, two sets of boys from the McDonald McManus family and something happening now in the 21st century. Um, to someone, and there's a ghost element to that. Right, supernatural. Sort of, yeah, yeah. But, Interesting. So that's the next idea. It's uh, The throb is getting more intense and it's aching even more. And how long does it take you to write the novels? It's all a piece of string stuff. I mean, uh, this thing just did it for me for 10 years. Right, really? In and out, in and out. Two souls, yeah. Yeah, in and out. Uh, I don't think it's going to take that long for the other I one. Was, I, I was about to say, hopefully we won't have to wait, no, wait no, no, 10 no, years. No, 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 no. Well, time is of the essence, you know. <laughs> That's it. Henry MacDonald, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books. And you'll find Henry's uh, new book, Two Souls, in your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books, I-R-E. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breda Brown. Until Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production 